0: Before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know that this episode will talk about a variety of different topics, including addiction, self-harm, sex assault, and other issues rooted in trauma. If you are sensitive to any of these topics, this episode may not be for you right now. If that's the case, please be kind to yourself and skip this one or listen at a time when you're ready.
1: That's, that's where that kind of shame and self-blame comes in of I should have been able to know, I should have been able to see this. And when I was younger, I, I really took that perspective when it came to instances in my life where I've been sexually assaulted. Um, and I blamed myself for putting myself in those scenarios. And I think that's an experience that a lot of sex assault survivors have is that we, we self-blame and we think, oh, well, I should have done something in the moment um, to stop this. And ACT has kind of given me The the distance to be able to look at myself as just doing what I could in the moment, the
0: best way that I knew how. Hello, welcome to The Vibrant Introvert, the show about real people experiencing introversion and social anxiety, their stories of transformation and change, and how they thrive in their daily lives, all told through the lens of acceptance and commitment therapy. I'm Gabby Lanier, a board-certified behavior analyst and coach here's my big question for you. Why is it so much easier to show compassion for someone else than it is to show compassion for yourself? When I was serving in the Peace Corps, I lived for about a year in this small village. And when I was there, I remember this little girl. It's it's so interesting because the other day I tried to remember what her name was and I just could not remember. Anyways, I do remember what she looked like. She was dark-skinned, she had a sweet smile, and she always acted in this kind of sheepish way, like she was always trying to apologize for something. And she had this really stocky build, and she had this blunt short haircut, and she kind of reminded me of Dora the Explorer. She was five years old at the time when I met her, and I was 23. And this little girl she really stands out to me because I remember she wasn't treated very well either by her parents or by really anybody in our village and my best guess here is because she was really different she looked different she had this really prominent hump on her back and so every day I'd walk over to my host family's one room house when I was still staying with them and they would have me sit down in this plastic chair and they would kind of just wait on me hand and foot they were so sweet they'd serve me breakfast in the morning you know this like hot very very sweetened instant coffee and then a plate of fresh cheese and fried platino and they'd always serve it with this thick slightly charred tortilla that they would have from the night before anyhow this little girl she would come wandering in some days And I don't remember when it started exactly, but I began to hold her on my lap whenever I saw her. I would just hold my arms open and she'd come running. I felt like I had to, and it's not just because I kind of had this own sense of me craving touch all the time, but because she seemed to need that tenderness too. I felt this empathy for her because I noticed that You know, anyone who spoke to her ended up speaking to her pretty harshly and for no reason. And she ended up getting reprimanded for pretty much anything. Maybe I loved this little girl so much because in some way I saw myself in her. I recognized how I also tried to make myself small all the time. And how the world sometimes seemed really harsh and unfriendly to me. And at the time I was feeling a lot of this kind of harsh and unfriendly treatment but it wasn't from any one particular person it was playing out in my head it was coming from me so today our storyteller Caitlin Kendrick who I talked to way back in February when I was still pregnant is going to share her very personal journey one that involves her growing up as a super feeler in an addicted home how they experienced trauma both in the home and outside of it and how that impacted their ability to see herself and treat herself with compassion. In their story, they will talk about how acceptance and commitment therapy taught her how to take perspective on her story, and how that has slowly shaped not only an understanding of their life and trauma, but an even stronger sense of who she is and what she wants to be about. And by the way, I'm going to be using a mix of pronouns as Caitlin uses both pronouns, she and they. So welcome, Caitlin. Welcome to ACT Inspired Behavior Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, Before we get started, I'd love to just have you say hello and just introduce yourself to the audience.
1: Uh, Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Caitlin Kendrick, and I'm a board-certified behavior analyst um, that works in a clinical setting in the North Denver metro area. I've lived in Denver for uh, this year, it'll be six years. Um, I moved from Southern California, which is where I grew up and spent most of my life, did my undergrad there, um, and then moved to Colorado to be closer to family.
0: Awesome. Um, so I, I can't wait to get to know you a little bit more, Caitlin. Um, so I'm just going to just preface and say that I found you through a blog post, the ACBS website, and part of this diversity and equity and inclusion group. So you wrote, you wrote a blog article, and I really, really connected with what you had to say and your story. Do you want to just tell the audience really quickly, like how you've connected with ACT, with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy?
1: Absolutely. Um, um, So I, when I was, I write in the blog post, when I was around uh, age 19 or 20, my dad bought me a copy of Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, and I was offended, so I threw it away. um <laughs> i <laughs> like, what's this shit? <laughs> exactly. I, I saw it, and I was like, you know, who does he think he is giving me this? And, and he doesn't know anything, and um, so I threw it away, uh, very spitefully. And uh, at the time I was working in education. I was working with kids that were uh, low income and experienced um, a, a lot of trauma, n- not because they were low income, but in addition to being low income, um, also had uh, a lot of baggage on their backs for being such young little kiddos. Um, and this wasn't in in uh, ABA context at all. This was uh, a No Child Left Behind kind of um, funded after school program. I had absolutely no qualifications. I BS'd my way through the interview. I just wanted to work with kids, and so. My dad bought me that. I was really struggling emotionally. Um, I I did not get diagnosed with uh, any mental health disorders until I was around 21, but struggled with self-injury from uh, around age 14 and was in and out of treatment quite a bit as a teenager, um, but never medicated or diagnosed with anything uh, that I can recall specifically. Uh, And so my dad bought me that. I threw it away. Flash forward you know, around seven years later, and I start learning about ACT. And I didn't, I don't even remember how I came upon it. I think I might've been doing research, um, started learning about relational frame theory. I just kind of jumped into this like therapeutic world of ACT and was really inspired by um, Stephen Hayes in specific. So I watched everything I could um, from him on YouTube. And then I signed up to attend the ABAI ACT like special workshop or boot camp or whatever it was Mm -hmm. in 2018. And I couldn't make it, I missed my flight. I was really depressed. I didn't go. And so a couple of months later, I watched it. And it just changed my life. And, you know, I certainly think that ACT is not without its faults. And Stephen Hayes is a human being. So I don't want to make it seem like he's this, you know, Christ-like figure that has all the answers. But I think it was the perspective-taking of self that really opened the the ACT world and that kind of process up to me. I had never thought about um, who I was as a child and honored that kind of space as Mm -hmm. a unique experience and my my experience. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what opened me up to act was this kind of it was really transformational for me, um, reflecting back on who I was as a young, younger person, reflecting back on who I was as a kid. And having empathy for myself because up until that point i had really had a lot of self-blame and i guess I, i'm not really contextualizing this appropriately but yeah. um the,
0: the go ahead no i was just gonna say i love that because i think that's a great segue into your story is kind of <laughs> like you did encounter act eventually and i i find it almost hilarious that your dad gave you this book because I'm trying to think of my own dad and my dad would never in a million years come across something like that and then decide to give it to me. <laughs> that just makes me laugh. Um but yeah and you talk about your empathy and I remember reading about how you said that you were like a super feeler. It had been something that you struggled with because it kind of forces you to confront some of those really hard feelings. But then you learned how to kind of turn that into a strength. And now you know you're doing the work that actually helps build up others through that perspective taking and that empathy. Um, So I'd love for you to just go into talking about you and your story. And um, I know that you've experienced a lot of hardships, a lot of trauma. So whatever you feel comfortable sharing, Caitlin, and if you were to think about kind of where you'd want to start with your story, where would that start for you?
1: I think it's good to contextualize, um, you know, kind of what my intersectional experience was as a child.
0: I want to take a moment and define intersectionality. Intersectionality refers to the complex cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination, such as sexism, racism, classism, combine, overlap, or intersect, especially in the experiences of marginalized individuals or groups. This is a definition straight from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, by the way.
1: We were not, uh, we were very financially comfortable. I didn't go without in terms of, you know, having somewhere safe to sleep and and those kinds of things. Um, But my, I grew up in in an addicted home. And that was um, around my whole life until my mom got sober when I was 15. And my dad was sober for a short period from um, shortly after that until maybe my early 20s. Um, And and now he's, he's a pretty heavy drinker again. Uh, But um, I struggled a lot as a child feeling really alone and isolated. And part of that is because I grew up in an addicted home, um, in an addicted home. The other part is that I was an only child. So I didn't have a lot of like, yeah, man, this is a little bit overwhelming kind of feedback Mm -hmm. from somebody else that was experiencing that. Mm -hmm. And then I was also identified um, from a very early age as a gifted and talented learner. So I was just in general, um, I struggled socially, and I still tend to struggle socially. Uh, Just maybe two years ago, I was diagnosed with social anxiety, and that probably should have happened way long ago, like 20 years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And that helped me put a lot of things into perspective.
0: Okay, so one of my committed actions here is to share my work with you. Caitlin talked about their experience in social anxiety, and I felt an instant connection to them as someone who also struggles with social anxiety. You may relate to this as well, or you may not, but if you do and are interested in finding resources to help you navigate your struggles in this area, I welcome you to check out my coaching service, Coaching for Vibrant Introverts. You know, I'm not a therapist, but I am a person with social anxiety and a coach who is trained in the frameworks of acceptance and commitment therapy and applied behavior analysis. If you're ready to make transformational change in your personal or professional life, feel free to reach out to me, book a free discovery call on my website, and you can find more information by checking out my show notes. Thank you so much. So let's go ahead and get back to the episode.
1: I, it, it, addiction is all over my family on both sides. i um, learning a lot about genealogy uh, and my family's story has helped me contextualize that a lot um, and learn about, you know, where my, where my family came from and what they went through and, and those kinds of things. Um, but uh, you mentioned super feelers. So I would also identify both of my parents as super feelers, though. I'm not sure that they would, uh, they would identify themselves. My mom, for sure, but my dad, I'm not sure of. And, and so I think we had this very emotionally volatile environment because we were all very emotional people, but we, n- none of us, my parents in particular, didn't really have the tools to navigate that. And so what they relied on was using substances to kind of mitigate that space of, I'm so overwhelmed by my feelings right now and I have absolutely no way to deal with it. And so that's the kind of environment that I grew up in was this very physically safe, but emotionally unsafe um, kind of space.
0: Could you, could you pause for a moment and give an example of, of, do you have a memory of when you kind of saw this characteristic in yourself of being a super feeler? Like, what did that look like? I think um, as I, as I
1: went through middle school and um, in high school, I I struggled a lot with gender identity. And I feel like that was also part of it. Uh, But I really got into like, this is going to sound cheesy. And some people might not know what I'm talking about. I really got into like emo music. And emo was like my identity. And it was like this place where I could feel. Uh And I also found a lot of things to relate to in the media so I watched a lot of shows with troubled teens quote-unquote and I would relate to these characters and, and I started to notice like oh um, and I didn't have a word for it until recently Superfeeler super feeler is a, a relatively new term to me um, but yeah I don't know if that really answers the question I don't know if I was super aware until more recently in my life I just knew that I felt different and that I was a very emotional human being and that my parents found my emotions overwhelming. So I internalized that, which is a lot of the reason why I engaged in self-harm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've never heard of that term either before, but I, I, I feel like I identify with it, even though I'm not super, super clear on exactly what it means. But um, I was definitely described as like overly sensitive and that it wasn't a good thing <laughs> when I was growing up. I still live that way, um, even more so now, being pregnant with all the hormones and everything. Oh, I um, definitely understand <laughs> zero control over anger right now. <laughs> okay, so thank you for thank you for sharing that. And so, wh- where does where does this kind of take you? So you were you were experiencing this kind of label, this or this feeling, this overall kind of like over identifying with emotions, really feeling them, like really big emotions. Your parents didn't know how to respond to them and help you because they couldn't really help themselves. Like how, what happened with you and your the ways that you navigated it when
1: you were younger? So whatever I was feeling in the moment, I, I did. There was no disconnect between I'm having this feeling and now I'm having thought about it and now there's a behavior. It was feeling to behavior pipeline um, to make up a term on the fly. Oh, I love that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, so what I started doing, like I mentioned is I, I engaged in self-harm. I went to treatment for it that continued up in probably 10 years up until I was 24. Um, it was never really anything that was, you know, life threatening. It was really just a, a coping mechanism that I got from an idea from, from a show. And I, you know, I figured maybe that'll give me some relief. And I decided to try it. Um, in addition, I also started, you know, I don't want to overshare, but I'm a chronic overshare. That's part of trauma. Mm-hmm. I started having a lot of sex and some of it was consensual and some of it was non-consensual. You know, I was 14. I put myself in situations with older m- men, usually, um, most of the time that were, re- that was really unsafe. And so I put myself at risk a lot. Um, and then I just started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, uh, and messing around with those kinds of things, um, And my parents, I was, I guess, really good at hiding it because they weren't incredibly disconnected, but they were also getting divorced around that time between uh, 2004 and 2005. And so they were really just, you know, overwhelmed and and succumbed to what they were experiencing as as opposed to kind of paying attention to what my experience was in that situation. So um, I also, around that time uh, when I was 14, Or 15 had a a repressed memory surface that I had been um, sexually abused, molested by a family member, my older cousin. And at the time that it occurred, I remembered and I told my parents, and all in a hotel room together, he and I were sharing a bed. Um, And my parents, they talked to my grandma about it. And that was the only kind of course of action that was taken. So because they swept it under the rug, I had repressed it. And I don't, I can't identify the reason why I remembered it was just any other regular day and it, it kind of popped up. And so once that memory surfaced, I really started to struggle. Um, And I I would say that my journey of struggling with mental health and being in and out of treatment and, um, you know, being on 72 hour holds and those things didn't really uh, just the beginning of last year, I was in a uh, intensive outpatient program um, from nine to three every day. So it's really up and down for me, um, but the older I get, the more I find better, more adaptive coping mechanisms, and ACT has really, really helped me that with uh, values and committed action and sort of moving towards what's sustainable in my life as opposed to what's going to immediately fix my feelings in the moment. Yeah.
0: Wow. Some of those memories that, that pop up, you are saying that you don't know where they came from and... And that's the thing I think that has been really eye opening for me with how the underpinnings of ACT you know, it is this human language and cognition science, you know, relational frame theory, and how everything that you learn becomes part of this larger network and you can't unlearn things. You know, you can forget them, but they can also be triggered in ways that you would never have imagined and then trigger secondary emotions or experiences that, you know, you really can't control how you might, how they might come up for you. And it sounds like for you, this was a really powerful thing for you to have re-experienced. So for you, like you remembered this, you're, you're continuing to also deal with this. And I, I, really am glad that you're sharing that, like, even to this day, like this is something that continues to be difficult. Um. And you, you, you train and act, you know, you use act in your own, in your personal life and it's made such a difference, but act isn't the cure-all treatment that, you know, like you do it and then you're done. It's this continual journey for you.
1: Yeah. I think, I think act has really, you know, like you said, it's not a cure-all, right. But it's allowed me to distance myself from my experience and I don't mean that in a negative way, or I'm not you know, listening to what my experience has been, but it's, it's, a, it's really allowed me to diffuse from a, what my experiences have been, what my behaviors were in relation to those experiences and giving me this perspective of, okay, in every waking moment, I was doing the best that I could with the tools that were at my fingertips. And now I have this tool that allows me to explore spaces that cause me pain, without being overwhelmed by the pain. And that's not true all the time. I just recently had um, a situation that came up where somebody who I really respected was outed to me as um, potentially making women uncomfortable and, and not being very good at taking feedback. And it was really triggering to me to know that I had built a relationship with this person, but that I couldn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. And, and I had talked to my therapist, um, even though I, I'm an act professional, I still go to therapy. Uh, I talked to my therapist about it and she said, you know, that's, that's where that kind of shame and self-blame comes in of, I should have been able to know, I should have been able to see this. And when I was younger, I, I really took that perspective when it came to instances in my life where I've been sexually assaulted. Um, and I blamed myself for putting myself in those scenarios, you know, I blame myself for not screaming when, when my cousin um, touched me when I was seven or, or not, you know, whacking him away or something like that. And I think that's an experience that a lot of sex assault survivors have is that we, we self-blame and we think, oh, well, I should have done something in the moment um, to stop this. And ACT has kind of given me the, the distance to be able to look at myself as just doing what I could in the moment, the best way that I
0: knew how. I want to take a minute and zoom out for a second. Caitlin has done such a good job putting context to her story and her experience as a person struggling from past trauma. She talked about how she grew up, her parents, who were super feelers, how she grew up feeling physically safe but emotionally unsafe. They also talked about their reactions to these painful experiences. You know, her reaction of engaging in self-harm, her reaction of experimenting with drugs and sex, and how all of these behaviors occurred in context to their surroundings, their lived experience, even in the generation that raised her, acknowledging the genealogy that her life stems from. Zooming out like this is one way that we can take perspective, but there are other ways too. This perspective taking is a key skill that is taught in acceptance and commitment therapy, the skill being self as context. We've talked about it before, and one key element of this skill is your ability to connect to your observer self. We first talked about this in episode seven with Joanna Burberry. This observer self is the part of you that can distance from what's going on around you from the external environment to the internal one, including your thoughts, your feelings, and your learning history. It's the part of you that can zoom out or zoom in and observe your life from that decentralized place. It's the witness to your life. Before we move on to the next part of Caitlin's story, when they discovered ACT and connected to it powerfully in their own life, I want to share how connecting to ourself in context can help garner a new perspective between yourself and your lived experience, ultimately changing your relationship with your thinking self, your mind. And so I invite you to do what Brian Middleton suggested, and that's the storyteller from the last episode, what he called time traveling. Are you ready? So take a moment to think of a fairly negative thought that you've had lately, and imagine when you first had that thought. Picture yourself at that age, maybe when you first started having those thoughts. And if you can't think of when you first had it, just think of around the time when you first started thinking it. Okay, so now that you have that thought in your mind and around the age when you first started thinking it, go ahead and close your eyes. And if you're driving, please don't do that. (laughs) Just listen along. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to take one deep breath in together. Breathing out slowly. Becoming aware of the sensation of breathing. Remember, who is observing your breath? It's your observer self. Say hello to that part of you. That part that observes everything. That part of you that never changes. That produces no thought. So take another deep breath or series of breaths with that in mind. Connecting to our observer self, allow yourself to travel back a bit to the time that you were at that young age. Think where yourself would have been at the time. Maybe this time of year, where would they have been? Or perhaps when they first began to experience that thought. Imagine their hair, their eyes, their clothes, and the way that they held themselves. And now that you have that image in your mind, go ahead and think your thought, that slightly uncomfortable thought. And as you do so, hold space for that thought for a moment, while also allowing your mind to hold this image of your younger self. Do you feel anything? Do you feel a desire to comfort, for example, or to hold? Allow that sense of compassion to wash over your younger self and to wash over you. With that, I invite you to say goodbye to this image and allow it to slowly fade away as your observer self returns to its focus on your breath. And with that, take one more deep, slow breath in and out. And then come back to the here and now. This is the work of taking perspective in one small way, but notice how powerful it can be to view your thought in this way. It may not change in form, but it may change in function. By the way, this simple exercise of simply imagining yourself at a younger age is a technique explored in a recent research article published this year that uses perspective taking to cultivate self-compassion. In this study published by Louise Boland and other colleagues, they showed that simply thinking of your younger self can transform the function of your selected negative thought. Pretty cool, right? So much more work can be done as you will hear in Caitlin's story. And if you're interested in reading that publication, just go ahead and click on the link in my show notes. With that, let's return to Caitlin's story and hear their experience with perspective taking and how that opened them up to this cultivation of self-compassion, going beyond those difficult experiences and patterns of blame and shame and reconnecting to what they really want to be about. And I wonder too, like you were saying that when you had listened to this recording of this Steve Hayes talk that was given at ABAI, by the way. Dr. Stephen Hayes, who Caitlin mentioned, is the developer of relational frame theory and has guided its extension to acceptance and commitment therapy. He has written a number of publications, over 670 articles, and has written a best-selling self-help book called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. He's a professor of psychology in the behavior analysis program at the University of Nevada. What about that, now that we kind of know more about this context in your history like what spoke to you so strongly about that?
1: Um, I, don't, I don't remember the exact language that he used, but it was something to the effect of like, think about how you talk to yourself now and imagine yourself as, a. I think it was three or five year old. And would you talk to your three or five year old self that way? And at the time when I heard that, my son was really young. And so I kind of used him as a surrogate of like, I'm going to use him as an example of my younger self and having a child has given me worlds of perspective taking when it comes to having empathy for who I was when I was younger. Um, But it, that kind of think about how you talk to yourself now and think about talking to yourself like that as a child. I cried. I like wept and broke down thinking about the things that I say to myself, but well said to myself, you know, two, two or three years ago, which still comes up um, but with less frequency And saying those things to my son and just thinking about how, you know, when a lot of these things happened and were happening, I was completely out of control of the situation. And that's really what sparked to me, hmm, maybe there's something to this act thing. And I just started reading and learning everything I could about it and then incorporating it into my work as a behavior analyst.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That makes me tear up. I don't know if it's the hormones or (laughs) what it is, but... I think that's such a key, key, key difference too, Caitlin, about forcing yourself to think positive thoughts is kind of one modality or one one way of thinking, one way of um, providing therapy to individuals who have a lot of negative self-talk. And this is different and it's really subtle, but it's not changing by force your thoughts, it's changing the perspective of if you were to turn this whole situation around and the other person on the other end of that conversation wasn't just your adult self, it was, you know, cause you should know better, you shouldn't do this, this isn't good enough, but you're looking on the other side as this younger version of yourself. Like that is so powerful. And that is what can start to make some changes. You know, when you, when you start to see it with that new perspective, Oh my gosh, it's mind blowing. So, at the end of your blog post, and I I read it to you during our pre-interview, but you said something about your story, just in general, and that your story is not unique. Can you speak to what that means? Um, for some context, I was
1: sexually assaulted at a party um, in 2013, and then again in 2016, I was raped at knife point in my home. And so, I've gone through two trials. Um, Both of those people were found guilty. One is in prison. Um, His sentence was 72 to life. And the other one um, was a young kid that, you know, now I I guess I can have some empathy for. When I started writing this blog post, my intention was to write about sex assault and what my experience had been with sexual abuse and sex assault as a child and then also as an adult. I really wanted to write this blog post just about how ACT had helped me with sex assault. And my experience with that. But as I started writing, I started realizing that all of the pieces of my life had kind of led to this moment. And so um, I I entitled the piece. My story is not unique because one in six women in the U.S. is a victim of sexual assault in their lifetime. And every three seventy three seconds, somebody in the United States is sexually assaulted. And writing this piece, I kind of realized, yes, okay, I'm a sex assault survivor. This is something that has been prominent in my life. It's happened multiple times. But my experience and my story and what I've been through and who I am as a person it is so much more than that and so much more than the kind of narrative that I told myself for so long, which was that all I was good for was sex, because there had been instances in my life where that had been reinforced time and time again. Um, and so... Finding ACT kind of taught me that my value is more so in the things that I care about and what I put my time in and the decisions that I make as opposed to what my experiences have been and what my circumstances have been that were out of my control.
0: Yeah, and I think that 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 can be the part that can be so confusing when you start to do this work where you say, okay, if I no longer am the story that I tell myself, Who the hell am I? Yep. And so if you were to answer that question for yourself, what would you say? I would say that I am
1: a mother. I would say that I am a behavior analyst. I would say that I am a fierce advocate for children. I would say that I'm a fierce advocate in general. Um, I feel like, you know, the thing about trauma is that it kind of cuts us off from what's meaningful in our life. And can be this really overwhelming kind of, you know, heavy backpack that we carry around filled with all of the, the things that we've been through that have been horrible. Um, I, you know, I love animals. I love to cook. Um, I, you know, it would be hard for me, I think, to stop talking about um, who, who I am aside from my sex assault now. Whereas if you asked me that question three years ago, I'm not sure that I would have been able to answer it.
0: Oh my gosh. I love that. I just have to say, I, um, this, this makes me think of a conversation I had just a day or two ago with a teenager that I, that I work with. And I asked him, I said, you know, what is this something you want to work on? What's something that, that really kind of is, that's something that you recognize in yourself that you really want to change. And he said, I wish I cared about something. And it kind of blew me away. I'm like, really? Like, what do you mean? And he said, I don't know what I care about. I mean, I just kind of don't care about anything. And we talked for so long. And I just remember thinking, I know what you mean. It took me a while to put myself back in that place. Kind of what you're talking about of 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 over identifying with the problems in my life and the story that led that felt like had caused all those problems. And that's not at all what I identify with that kind of comes to mind when I think about who I am now. And that's, I think, what, a sign of the work that you've done, that you can identify the values and those perspectives that you now have on yourself that are so much more you than anything, any one trauma that you've had.
1: Yeah. And I I think that something that I that has really helped me with being resilient throughout my lifetime is that. I've always had a strong sense of what my values are. And I think sex assault and trauma in general just kind of disconnected me from those and act. And I didn't, I mean, I I didn't use the word values to kind of describe what I valued, but I've, I've always had this really strong sense of this is what's important to me. And I, and I haven't let go of that. And I think act kind of gave me this bridge between, you know, my trauma, who I am and my values and how I can, connect all of those three things together to move towards things that I care about.
0: So I have one more question for you. I would love to know, what are you doing this weekend that is super in line with your values that you're excited for? Oh, man. Um, hmm.
1: Well, I engage in a lot of um, online advocacy work. So I'm a moderator for a couple of Facebook groups. So that's a, a way that I've been able to kind of contribute to this work. Um, during the pandemic. And I just love to learn and read. And um, I, you know, I run a book group for uh, through ACBS. That's an anti-racist reading group for white people who um, want to learn a little bit more about breaking down their own internalized racism. So I'll do some work for that. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I try to dedicate most of my time to engaging in um, values-based decision-making and allotting my sacred self time to engaging in work that furthers marginalized voices. Um, That's really important to me.
0: Wow, that's amazing. It feels very aligned with what everything you've just talked about (laughs) sounds like. And I'm doing the work right now, this weekend. Well, thank you so much for your time, Caitlin. It was lovely to talk to you, and I can't wait to um, to share this with others. I think that there's there's bits and pieces that maybe not everyone will will say that that's my story, but there's parts of it I know that they'll relate to. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, well have a great weekend and I will touch base with you soon about, um, I'd love to get like a, a picture of you. And one thing I like to do in each episode is have some audio from your personal life. So if you wanted to share something like a video that you've taken that you think would be fun to share. And again, it, the purpose there is honestly just joy and lightness. I do musical
1: theater for a hobby. Would oh. it be okay if I sent you a video of that?
0: listen to Caitlin Kendrick, a mother, neurodiversity affirming behavior analyst, a fierce advocate for children, and a lover of animals, cooking, and musical theater. Caitlin lives their life at the intersection of multiple identities, including being neurodivergent, disabled, bisexual, and a non-binary femme. You can find her on Instagram at anti-racistbehavioranalyst. If you're interested in reading her blog post entitled, My Story is Mine, but I Know It is Not Unique, check it out in the show notes with a link to that article. Caitlin, thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing your story with us. Your journey and your story is your experience, and yet I understand how you say it's not unique. That's because so many folks out there can share your pain in a different yet similar way. And that's the other perspective we're sharing here, that we can easily struggle in our pain alone, feeling isolated. But if we can step back and distance just enough, we realize that there is a whole group of people out there, past and present, who know your pain, understand your pain, and who hold that pain with you in community. I also wanted to say that though I don't remember your name, sweet little girl that I used to hold in my lap, I think of you often, and I hope that by holding you those 11 years ago, You felt some comfort. And I hope that as a young woman you can now access self-compassion in some way shape or form and that your sense of who you are is not defined by your problems and imperfections but by your truest desires. That part of you that you really want to be about. I say this to my younger self as well and I know that she is smiling. If you are interested in reaching out and telling your story, contact me on Instagram at actinspiredbehavior or at my website, actinspiredbehavior.com. If you're interested in learning more about receiving support in your journey of transformation, check out my service, Coaching for Vibrant Introverts, which specializes in serving those who self-identify as introverts and who may experience anxiety and social anxiety. I'd love to hear from you. If this episode resonated with you, subscribe to this podcast and stay tuned for each new episode bright and early every other Wednesday. And perhaps you know someone who could relate to Caitlin or myself or who might benefit from this story because of what is going on in their life. If so, text them the link or share it with them on social media. Thank you so much. Hello again. I want to take a moment and say that this podcast is for educational purposes only, Content and conversation provided in this podcast should not be taken as or replace professional or therapeutic recommendations. As a board-certified behavior analyst, my goal is to disseminate act and behavior analysis to the wider public and have meaningful conversations to further explore our understanding. If you're concerned about your own personal well-being, I encourage you to seek out the help of a licensed professional who can provide individual support to you. Thank you.